Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. So I think that for millennials, we've only known that post Newt Gingrich government. All we have known is, is deadlock and like dirty tricks and not bringing the Supreme court nominee to, for consideration, you know, like all of these different things that we now associate with government. So it's so difficult for us to even conceive of it being different, but at the same time, the messaging that we're given whenever something happens that we as the people, right. As the, the democratic force disagree with, it's like, call your senators. Or call, you know, try to try to go to a town hall. But a lot of those things are shut off. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Everyone, happy Friday. Welcome to today's episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today is going to be a little different because we had a very lengthy conversation with Sarah's absolute favorite, Anne Helen Peterson. Sarah, would you like to? I mean, it's like a dream come true. It's just a dream come. This podcast is different because it's a dream come true. 
I talk about this a little bit in the interview, but I followed Anne for a very long time. She's my probably my number one most favorite writer on the internet. I've been reading her since about 2011, 12-ish, when she started writing Scandals of Classic Hollywood for the Hairpin. And I think she is so thoughtful and so smart, and we have an amazing conversation that we started because she was really pushing the discussion on coverage of evangelicals in the media, particularly surrounding the politics, and then really grew because she wrote amazing piece about millennial burnout. And so we're going to cover all that and a lot more. It's a very expansive conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. I think you're really going to like it. And we're sharing the whole thing with you because I think the trajectory of the conversation is important. So if you're not interested in hearing a lot about faith communities, I think we really get to the line from those faith communities into political participation and the line from her current viral success piece on millennials to our current political state as well. So we hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, welcome Anne Helen Peterson. Hello, everyone. I am so stupid excited to be joined today by Anne Helen Peterson, senior culture writer at BuzzFeed. When I first started emailing with Anne, who I have been following, we established before we started recording, since probably 2011, I emailed my husband and I said, Anne is my new best friend. Every choice I've made is worth it. (laughs) I found Anne when she started writing for the hairpin about celebrity gossip, scandals of classic Hollywood. Y'all, it was so good. She would go back. The one, my favorite one forever and always was when you talked about Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher and was like, hello, Brangelina, we're doing the same thing over and over again. Oh, that one was so good. We'll try to find it, put it in the show notes so y'all can check those out. But Anne was in the academic world for a long time and then left to join BuzzFeed and has recently gone a little viral, although I prefer Atlantic's term, the seminal analysis on millennial burnout. And we're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So we started conversing originally before the millennial burnout piece came out about evangelicals, because I thought you wrote some really beautiful pieces on your Facebook page and in your emails about some of the media coverage about evangelicals and where it's lacking and where it sort of becomes a little one dimensional and how that shows up. And particularly, I think, political analysis of evangelical women and maybe younger generations impact in that space. So talk to us about some of your thoughts and and where we started this conversation. Yeah, so I guess some background on me is that I grew up in a federated Presbyterian UCC church. What is that? I've never even heard of that. Well, what it was, so it's Presbyterian and UCC, United Church of Christ. Oh. What happened, this was the early 1900s in my hometown in northern Idaho, is that, you know, they had two congregations that— came together and said, well, we can, you know, we can become one congregation and that will help us pay for a church and that sort of thing. There's a lot of like weird kind of combinations that happened back then. And they're, and they are pretty similar, both Protestant, Calvinist. UCC though, has since that happened, has gone a little bit more to on the progressive side. So I even remember when I was in high school, so this would have been like the late 90s, early 2000s. They were ordaining gay clergy members, which was blasphemy to the Presbyterian side, <laughs> um, but which has also you know changed even since then. I think oftentimes the pastor of the church would shift between a UCC pastor and a Presbyterian pastor. So oh, wow. 
first eight years that I was there, it was a UCC pastor, and then it became a Presbyterian pastor, and then also a Presbyterian youth pastor. And that, the hiring the youth pastor happened when I was about, you know, I don't know, sixth grade or something. That was really when the church started to turn a little bit more evangelical flavored. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is more emphasis on being saved and saving others, um, you know, asking Jesus into your heart, a lot of the more contemporary iterations of evangelicalism. And I started going to church camp every summer. You got introduced to DC Talk, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the idea of of not listening to secular music. Like I remember uh-huh. the first time I even heard that term secular was at camp. And I became a church counselor and eventually would work, like spend a lot of my summers up there. And the emphasis at this camp, which was a Presbyterian camp, was really on a more evangelical experience. And at the same time, and this was happening across the United States, like a lot of these more, you know, the Presbyterians are known as frozen chosen. Like a lot of these more (laughs) mainline churches started doing things like having a contemporary worship service with guitars, drums, right? And, And praise songs. And just that tension really played out in my congregation between the olds who still wanted hymns at 11 a.m. And then you know, the people in the 8.30 a.m. service who were raising their hands, right? Which was, again, like to a frozen church. For a Presbyterian, that's pretty scandalous. (laughs) I mean, sometimes in the Baptist church, you get side-eye, but in a Presbyterian church, I can only imagine. Yeah, totally. And I slowly moved away from the church over the course of my college career. But at the same time, I think I, because of that background, both in terms of like the more mainline, like, deeply theological, mm-hmm. you know, um, having clergy who went to seminary, that more intellectual grounding. And that was always how my mom, who's a scientist, that's how she approached her faith. And then contrast that with the more evangelical and also like the parts that drove me away, which were a lot to do with shame around sex and different mm-hmm. moral questions and that sort of thing. But then as I moved, you know, into reporting, I just realized how out of touch so much reporting was with actual people of faith, right? So whether it's that like they don't even know what evangelicals, yeah, I can't even say the word, what evangelicals are really like, or have never, you know, talked to them or besides just reporting outside of a political rally or something like that, there just seemed to be a real alienation. and. I think with the 2016 election and then this past midterms, there started to be a little bit more nuance in the way that we talked about evangelical women in particular. um, And again, like mostly even white evangelical women. Mm -hmm. And I was really moved by this podcast uh, episode of The Daily that was about um, evangelical women who were thinking about voting for Beto in Texas. And I had been reporting on the Beto, the Senate race down there, following people around. I, you know, I went to Abilene, which is this town that has three Christian universities, and it's called like the buckle of the Texas Bible Belt. And I talked to so many interesting Christians about their thoughts, um, about the current state of the Republican Party, about Beto, about immigration, just really thoughtful and generous people. And I think that 
I was hoping both in the ways that I wrote about these people in my pieces and then also in, in my newsletter to show that there, you know, just like there is variation within the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, there is also a whole lot of variation within believers and within evangelical um, women and evangelicals just broadly. And so that's kind of, that's a long answer to, to your <laughs> but that is how I started to get interested in thinking about these things and um, thinking about them in a way that's not reinforcing stereotypes, but also not ignoring some of the larger currents within the community. Well, and it's such a hard thing to talk about. I think we struggle with this is because you don't want to do the let's privilege a voice that so many people in the country already find us privileged. And that's what I think is that's where the difficulty of like trying to bring nuance to the conversation, particularly about white evangelicals, because you get this reaction of like, why are they the only voice we talk about? Why is that the only voice we care about? Which I don't necessarily think is true even in the coverage, but I do understand that reaction. And so that's something I really struggle with. But I think that it's really important, and no matter what part of the nation or which group you're talking about, to acknowledge that it's not a monolith. I mean, that's true for African Americans. That's true for African American Christians. Like, that's just, there's so much variance. And if we're going to try to, you know, painting with a broad brush while can be helpful in analysis to a certain extent, like there's just limits to that. There's really limits, especially when you're talking about something as complicated as politics and faith. Right. And I think like if you even just thinking very broadly, there's a difference between members of an evangelical church in the suburbs of Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. and, you know, members of an evangelical church in rural Texas. Like there just is, there is a difference because you're intersecting with all of these different elements of politics, like faith is just one part of that. Um, And there's a difference too, if you've only grown up in the church, if the place where you live is lacking in diversity, if you are doing a lot of mission work, you know what I mean? Like there's just so much. And this is why, honestly, I think that a lot of media and a lot of people across the United States really don't understand Mormons (laughs) and don't (laughs) Don't understand like why the Bundys actually have come out against the wall and in favor of immigration is they there's no understanding that like there are different parts of the of Mormon teachings Mm -hmm. than the rest of what we consider Christianity writ large. This connects a little bit for me and with your piece that is everywhere right now about the millennial generation, because my upbringing, super similar to yours, I went to a Southern Baptist church that was headed by a preacher who was an excommunicated Catholic. Wow. And so nothing about my, just calling me a Southern Baptist tells you absolutely nothing about my formative faith Mm -hmm. experiences. My church was very liturgical in some ways as I look back. My preacher talked with me openly about evolution. I remember him saying, well, like, that's just a fact, Beth. There's not anything to argue about. It's just a fact. So that's a really unusual experience. At the same time, I went to youth events. I remember one vividly where they passed around a coffin for us to put our secular CDs in, right? And even even at the time, I thought, well, this is not where I want to be. But (laughs) there was, like, such a messiness of that experience growing up that I really value now. And it's also completely at odds with what I feel as a millennial is this pressure for pure experiences. Yeah, Yeah, that's so interesting. So I hadn't thought about it this way, but I love 
thinking about my own past in terms of being exposed to a lot of very strong ideologies and never being wholly surrounded by one, right? So even as I was kind of inculcated into the more rigid parts of teen youth, you know, evangelical like purity, I had other people in my life, including my parents, really, who were like, huh, that's interesting. Um, But you know, there are other things, you know, like my mom too would always talk about like, of course, evolution is real. um, And also, you know, there's a reason why so many physicists are Christians. So having like a a more complex and and nuanced field of, of belief systems before me, basically too showing that like, yes, there's contradiction all over the place. Like nothing makes pure, like total sense and you can never live totally purely, if that makes sense. And I do wonder how easy it is to surround yourself just with people who believe the same thing as you do, whether that's online or in your real life, how much of that texture people are getting anymore. Because I know that, you know, one of the reasons that I was sent to cover so many Trump rallies, this is when I was living in New York, um, was because so many people who worked in the media were like, who are these people? Like, is it scary? You know, what I mean? <laughs> no, they're not scary. I, I like I went to church with these people. Like I grew up with these people. And granted, I had like some privilege of of being a white lady who does not inspire animosity. But I've also found that even in the crowd, you know, talking with other reporters, often like if you are a black reporter and at a Trump rally, oftentimes that people in the audience will go out of their way to be really nice to you, to show that, that to be like, I'm not a racist. Look at me being nice to this black reporter. <laughs> well, and I think so. It's so weird because while I do think we have that, I think we have this search for a pure experience. We There is a lot of siloing. I do think for the millennial generation, and I feel this experience with the church itself, this idea that it, as a millennial, I was born in 81. I'm an older millennial. I think that there's this, experience of never having an institution or an idea sort of be wholly good in a way that our parents wanted it to be or experienced it. And what I mean is like there was always just sort of this overwhelm or problematic nature as we got older with everything. Like it's not like we ever got to experience sex outside the evangelical context. I mean, it was there was always AIDS. Sex was always something that could be exceptionally dangerous. The church was always problematic. The media was always, I don't remember Walter Cronkite, you know, like the media was always increasingly sort of lots of inputs, overwhelming, a lot of information we had to sort out. So it was never this sort of up on a pedestal situation. The government, I mean, we were completely and totally post-Watergate. You have us reaching political age during the Clinton scandal. So I was never putting presidents up on a pedestal and thinking of them in that way. And so I think being in an evangelical experience in which I felt like I was being pushed to think about the world in very black and white ways and being surrounded by – so it was comforting and I can see the appeal because I was in this very – experiencing the world in increasingly sort of gray, confusing ways and having this place say – you know, oh, but we have an answer that will make it all less confusing. The The fundamental issue here is that I'm a woman. <laughs> and so maybe if I'd been a man, I could have just been a preacher. It had been different. But because I was a woman and a very assertive woman at that, like then there was sort of conflict built into that structure as well. And it never felt this sort of thing that needed to be up on a pedestal. And so 
you know, I feel like what ev- what millennials are always struggling with is the are these institutions that we're being told are the answer that we can see nothing but questions in the face of, be it public education or academia or the media or church or the government. And that's exhausting. It's like gaslighting, especially with baby boomers. They're presenting these things as answers. And you're like, no, all I see is questions and issues. So I don't know what you're talking about. Because there is no easy answer. These place, All these institutions are problematic. And at least in my personal experience with the church and what I connect with so much, like in that daily podcast with Jen Hatmaker and all these sort of voices in it, the female voices in the evangelical movement, even though now I'm an Episcopal, I hear them saying, first of all, you're not crazy. We have the same questions. We see the same issues. And these these institutions are problematic, but we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We still feel like there is value here. You see it too. So it's like this double validation of, yeah, we see the good and yes, we see the bad and it's complicated. So what do we do next? You know, what do we, can we all just, I think that's why your piece went viral. It's just this acknowledgement of, yeah, you're not crazy. Everybody feels this kind of just overwhelm at all these Issues be them with labor or the church or whatever, with domestic work at home, like, and it just, it's so affirming to have voices say, yeah, I see it. I see it. I see it just like you do. Yeah, I think that's definitely, I've seen this turn and you would know better than I would, but I've seen it um, with the likes of Jen Hatmaker and other women who are prominent within the church broadly conceived right now is that faith is messy. Like life is messy, so it would make sense that faith is also messy. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think oftentimes is missing from coverage, right? You know, the, the way I delineated it was like that I see a difference within the church between people who are absolutely certain of what they believe and then those who are constantly seeking and have always thought of of the of faith as a a seeking process that is not full of you know immediate answers or certainty in any sort of way and that to me is just totally alighted in the way that people outside of the church understand the church we are special breakfast people here at pantsu politics but not just when beth and i are on the road The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And I think that matters so much politically and the reason that there is so much attention on that community because the absence of messiness in the faith community, that search for pure experiences in the faith community has become so political Mm -hmm. and influences especially the right so significantly that now we seek purity in our candidates, we seek purity in the parties. We do, but we don't, right? Because Donald mm-hmm. Trump is nothing close to a pure experience of anything. Right. But I think about something like abortion, and I, I don't know how you can avoid the conversation around what's happening in the evangelical community when you see what that translates to in terms of political action. Yeah. Well, and even something like the March for Life, which happened this past weekend, I think it's so difficult for people to get to wrap their heads around, right? So I covered it for the first time two years ago. And first of all, I didn't realize like what, basically it's like a youth group trip where lots of different Catholic high schools from across the nation, like it's something that you go to every year and you can get extra credit if you do it. But really in in practice, it's a lot of like wearing matching shirts and kind of like flirting with other people who are there for the (laughs) Like every youth field trip. I mean, that's what I try to tell people. I lived in Washington, D.C., and I'm like, you don't understand. I took the metro when they would swarm with people. It's like 75% high schoolers, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there were a lot of things that I, you know, stood up for or attended or ostensibly advocated for when I was a high schooler because it was just, you know, I went along with what the church was doing. But it's against this backdrop of, of, you know, anti-abortion, anti-women's reproductive rights. But then there are also people there who I met, and most of them were priests, <laughs> who were talking about, you know, the like the whole cloth, that pr- to be pro-life is to yeah. also be pro-refugee, also be... Anti-death um, penalty. Yes, anti-death penalty. Like, it's this whole cluster of things that actually works, I think, not in a, you know, a pure way, that's the wrong word for it, but more in a coherent way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you separate out just one of these things and you make it into a march where kids 
are going and oftentimes hooking up <laughs> and like <laughs> so messy. It gets so messy. Um, and so to try to like talk about it and then with everything that happened that I, I, with this particular March, like as the backdrop this weekend, how do you unravel any of that? Well, and I think what gets missed, and this is one of the th- things I emailed you about initially in these conversations with sort of the like New York Times, Washington Post profiles of evangelicals is that in my mind, what I've realized reading them and just being in the church community in different parts of my life is that there's two groups. There's the group in which faith presents an answer to who goes to heaven and hell, and it's about what happens after you die. And there's a group that really tries to use it as a guidepost for how they live on earth. And I think that that is something that gets lost in the analysis. I mean, when you're listening to that woman on the New York Times, the daily podcast, she's talking about how to walk like Jesus in her daily life. She is struggling and going to bat with those ideas. What does it mean about how I treat my neighbor? What does it mean with how I treat immigrants? And then you read a profile in the post of that church in, I think it was Alabama or Mississippi, and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's all, it all, all, only thing that matters is what happens when you die. And it's all just, it's all judgment day. And you're like, what? I mean, it's like two different universes. And I think that's a really, what you see, I think, in the growing voices in the evangelical community is pushback from those people who say, you know, the Richard Roars, the liturgist podcast, all that group. Even, I think, I would argue even sort of like Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown. And like, there's undercurrents of that, a lot of that. And what they talk about is this idea of, no, we're going to try to use these principles right now, how we're acting in our day-to-day lives. What does it mean, boots on the ground, in our communities? It's just a very, very different approach. Doesn't it have a throwback to, like, the the ideology of what would Jesus do and, like, the bracelet oh, in the late bracelet. 90s? Yes. So if we ever, because of the particular backdrop of that moment— the questions of what would Jesus do for me, at least it was always like, should you like, like sneak out of your house and make exactly. out? With a it's always, it's the gospel of sin management. My favorite phrase ever that I read in Rachel Held Evans book. Like what would Jesus do was not, here's a, here's an invite. It's like Beth always talks about when men email us, it's usually instructional. And when women email us, it's invitational. What would Jesus do was an instruction. It was stop what you're doing, feel guilty, check yourself. It's not an invitation to ask questions and be curious. Come on. Yeah, like the fact that it was on, you wore it on your your wrist, right? Like that was such an indication of it. It was like a bracelet that was supposed to zap you if you were doing something wrong. Totally. Well, and what I taught, what I we you and I were talking about earlier is that I think that so much of this, for me, I, I just feel like the Trump presidency, and I think this is true of the the millennial burnout conversation overall, particularly. Um, with regards to in the faith community as well, though, is that he just, because everything is escalated and because we have this message of sort of, I love this part of your article where you talk about the millennial message is like optimize, optimize your parenting, optimize your academic performance, optimize, this is how you'll get ahead in our current economic environment is optimization, 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 always be working. And when you have that in your personal life and you're so internalizing that message and then you have this this man come along and create all this chaos and all these especially if you're a person of faith or a person just a person not even a person of faith just a person in the world and you see all this conflict and all these you have all these concerns and the sort of internal message we've all adopted is this individual optimization is how we solve things man that's anxiety producing <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and especially too, yeah, I had so many people write 
I mean, I just had so many people who have written me in response to the article, but especially when I was asking for different perspectives from people of color, from people who are disabled about how burnout works differently for them, I received so many responses from Christians who were talking about how burnout, like in some ways, you know, faith could be a solution to burnout because you have a faith community that is can provide some of that support that is often missing in our current, like current life, the way that we live lives and the way that we don't have a lot of connections with people around us. But at the same time, there's also the fact that like when you are operating within Christianity and with this impetus that like, you know, I need to be saving anyone that I possibly can. And if I'm not like that person is going to go to hell, like imagine in that weight and how much pressure that is. And that, you know, anytime that you're not out there doing the work, doing God's work, like you are potentially not only like losing your own salvation, but losing other people's salvation, you are failing the world. And that is a huge amount of weight to put on someone, and especially on the teen. Well, and I think that that's true even if you're in the other camp and the emphasis is not on heaven and hell, but sort of being the the face of faith in your community, serving the poor, helping refugees. Like that's a, that's a whole other kind of – I think we all feel that pressure, man. Even if you're not going to a church that's talking about being the hands and feet of Jesus, like we're all feeling this pressure of like – Yikes, people are suffering, kids are separated, like, and we feel this individualized, like, like optimization, man, better get on it. It's all up to you. And it's really stressful. <laughs> right. Well, I, I will say that after the election, oh, it was just so heavy. And there was like, I remember when the Muslim ban came down and like people were headed to the airports. And as a reporter, you know, like we cannot attend protests. We cannot volunteer for campaigns. Like even if you are someone like me who gets to oftentimes write with opinion, you still can't do those things. And so what could I do? I could report the crap out of stuff. So that really contributed to and accelerated my burnout was that like, if I'm somehow not trying to cover what's going on in the world, then I am failing in my duty to these people who are suffering. That really gets to what I've been dying to ask you, which is everything in your article, I think, so accurately describes the millennial experience, especially in that sense of I feel like I always need to be action oriented and results oriented. Nothing about our current way of governing is action oriented and results oriented. And I think the past two years have been so hard on everybody because it's been sort of administration does something awful big wave of action to counter it, whether it's healthcare or the travel ban or, you know, whatever, you know, separation of families at the border. Everybody says, okay, what can I do? I'm going to donate. I'm going to protest. I'm going to go down and do the thing. But it doesn't deliver results in the long term. I think there's this heavy sense of like, what, he's still the president? (laughs) How is this not working? And I think about the upcoming presidential campaign, and I think it's going to be full of fits and starts, too. And even the Democratic Congress, you know, governing just isn't an optimized process. Right. And I wonder how you think millennials can stay engaged, try to remake government in our image to some degree. What do you see as the the path for our political engagement to be sustainable in the long term? You know, it's so interesting. I've, I've been doing a lot of reading about polarization and how we got to this point. And the government didn't used to be this way. Like it just, it was not, 
it it was optimized. <laughs> like you could actually get legislation through. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Democrats controlled uh the House and the, the Senate and the House for a very long time. This was a different sort of Democrat. Like this was before the Southern Democrats broke off and really joined the Republican Party. Um, but with that in place and the presidency would kind of flip flop between parties, but the parties themselves were not that far from one another. Mm-hmm. And people also voters were much more willing to vote cross ticket, to um, switch party allegiances. You know, it wasn't such an incredibly, again, polarized way of looking at the government. And you can see this too in our conversations about abortion, that sort of thing. Like Ronald Reagan was not anti-choice until he ran for president and was like, oh, in order to build this coalition, I have to come out strong with this opinion. There just was much more malleability in the way that politicians and voters thought about different ideas. And so the current state of the government really didn't get this way until the 90s. Like you can trace it back to Newt Gingrich. I was going to say, I was about to cough and be like, Newt Gingrich. (laughs) And there's a great article written by um, McKay Coppins in The Atlantic about what happened with Newt Gingrich and how he changed everything, really. McKay Coppins, by the way, just as a sidebar, is such, he's a, he's a Mormon writer and he is so good at explaining a lot of these larger Mormon shifts, but also just Christian intersections with, with politics in general. So I think that for millennials, we've only known that post-Newt Gingrich government. Yeah. Yeah. All we have known is is deadlock and like dirty tricks and not bringing the Supreme Court nominee to for consideration, you know, like all of these different things that we now associate with government. So it's so difficult for us to even conceive of it being different. But at the same time, the messaging that we're given whenever something happens that we as the people, right, as the, the democratic force disagree with, it's like, call your senators. Or call, you know, try to try to go to a town hall. But a lot of those things are shut off to us or feel meaningless unless you live in Maine and somehow like can persuade Susan Collins of something, you know. Um, I do think that we are just now coming on the first generation of millennials taking power. Right. So whether that's with AOC or there's different mayors and and lower level public officials who are of our generation, who I do think want things to be very different and are resisting the status quo in a way that is making them seem like they're radicals when actually they just want to function in government. So hopefully, you know, for me, that is hope for change and also hope in different ways for, I think those those new politicians also see the burnout of our labor conditions and are going to advocate for a different relationship to work in our everyday lives that is also making me hopeful. I just listened to an interview with Frances Lee about her book, Insecure Majorities. Have you heard about this? No. So it's really interesting. Her whole premise is basically bipartisanship is necessary for the function of our government, but is completely irrational in the current situation because of the polarization and because of the competition. Like it shortens the time span. When we're flipping back and forth, when the control of our houses are flipping back and forth in such dramatic ways at such short time frames, like you're not going to look for an infrastructure win that's going to be 10 years in the making because it might be end up being a win for the other side. And like it's not rational. It's just not a rational thing to do if you're looking to stay in control or to 
to um, build political power or you're a member of a political party, which for better or for worse, that's what you have to be for the most part. Because our democracy wasn't built with political parties in mind. And she talks about how, like, we had a, we had a long string of Republican control basically after the Civil War. Then you have, see Democrats take over and all these different things. It's really fascinating. You know, I think what millennials and this is why I truly I'm going to add to the list of viral and seminal and say revolutionary analysis of millennial burnout, because we have to acknowledge that it's not this individual struggle. It's like consciousness raising in the purest form. Every, and that's what everybody says. Like, I actually didn't feel more depressed. I felt less alone. I felt less crazy. And when we can, because individual, I think individualism is such a huge problem, particularly in the millennial generation. And so I think the sooner we can look around at each other and say, you're not crazy. I see it too. It's not me. It's the system. And we're old enough, and that's why I'm so encouraged by, I'm not, you know, sometimes I want to burn it all to the ground. I'm not trying to lie. Beth is usually like, hey, we can't burn it all to the ground. Chill out. But so why we think balance is important on PSU politics. But I do think that there is going to have to be systematic changes. This is not a problem. And she talks about, Frances Lee talks about this. Like, we always think, well, it's the individuals in Congress that's the problem. But it's not. It's the, they're human beings responding to the demands of a particular system that is no longer working because of a lot of reasons, because of the changing economy, because of the Internet and technology. But we have to acknowledge that. I mean, I don't know what else we're looking for except for a government that is literally shut down and not working right now. So we have to look at that and say, OK, this isn't about individual optimization. A Congress full of AOCs is not going to solve the problem. The problem is in the process itself. And we need to think about some changes to the process, like ranked choice voting, like a process that doesn't reward, you know, straight party ticket voting or a process that's not about winner take all because that doesn't work to promote bipartisanship and that doesn't work to promote moderates and all these things. I mean, I think that truly the first step is an article like yours where we can all say, oh, okay, so this isn't not, this is not me. This is a problem across the board. This is a systemic issue that's not going to be solved by a nap or a long vacation. Let's all just come to Jesus with that for a moment. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you're right, though. It's hard to think of some of systemic change, like because mm-hmm. our government has been so constipated, for lack of a better word, so long that e- even talking about, you know, like changing our relationship to labor under capitalism seems like something that's so theoretical and philosophical that could never, ever happen. But at the same time, it's going to have to. Same thing with like dealing with climate change. Like there has mm-hmm. to be a paradigm shift. Otherwise, our kids and grandkids are going to be living in the road come to life. You know, like there has to be change. And if there's not like it's it's a major challenge for humankind to figure out if we can like make an actual turn in the road or if the status quo is so powerful that there is just no standing up against it. And I do think history tells us that that's not the case, mm-hmm. that we have been able to to change and shift. Oftentimes, though, it takes something larger than our personal concerns to enact that change. And and historically, it's oftentimes been war. Mm -hmm. And I don't want us to go to war, right? But I don't, I'm just, I'm curious about what it's going to take for change to happen. It's so interesting, though, because Beth and I come to poll, we're, I mean, we're not polarized, but we're from different sides of the aisle. And when we totally erase the status quo and start fresh is when we have our best agreements. Like we're all, we're both all in on universal basic income. Let's do that. Yeah. 
We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more of our conversation with Anne. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. coming from a more corporate environment in my work experience, I have this same feeling. I, I could never tell if I was at the end of something or the beginning of something else. Word. And it was probably both, but I always had that sense that 
this this is not working and mm-hmm. is not going to work in the long term. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with my individual organization or even my industry. It's just not working, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to adapt in some way. I keep looking around thinking, who will lead us through that adaptation? Mm-hmm. And my kind of orientation as, I guess, one of the elder millennials is like also a deep skepticism about leadership and mm-hmm. resistance to additional authority. And I think that's just a really tricky place to be. It's almost like being at that spot in the Wizard of Oz with the roads going everywhere and having the scarecrow that points in both directions. That's what my whole life has felt like. Yeah. And I think we've also been taught, even just in the last two years, that a lot of the people who we idolize for whatever reason as leaders, a lot of them are bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So there's this idea that like, I'm I'm scared to idolize someone or I'm scared to look up for, to someone because I am, I am scared of what would be re- revealed about them. And I think there's a difference between understanding that no one is perfect, right? And then our current understanding, which is like, a lot of people that you look up to will have been revealed to have like acted incredibly inappropriate towards women, right? Like that's different. So I do think that there is a wariness. But at the same time, there are other types of leaders that are different than the traditional white male leaders that have been the people that we've been told to look up to that I think the hard thing is, is that often because of the way that we conceive of leadership in this country and what leadership looks like, there is just so much anxiety over a woman or a person of color taking that role that even though they might be providing a different form of leadership that's very charismatic and very powerful and and something we want to get behind. There's also like this other side of backlash that you have to fight. And you can see that with Obama, actually. Yeah. And there's going to be the bumpy road of recognizing that there aren't any pure heroes that, Mm -hmm. you know, you see people already going through this with the histories of women who've jumped into the Democratic primary that, yeah, like there's going to be something in every individual's life that makes you go, oh, I don't know, because we're people. And I feel like we haven't kind of sorted our way through that either. The most hope I have when I think about this is, one, I do think that we are slowly changing our conception of leadership. And also because of technology, we don't have to have an FDR as the central figure leading us through these changes. We have more tools at our disposal to organize and to make changes. I mean, I think that you, despite the best efforts of everybody wanting to pick one star, and I guess Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of them, of the the new female freshman class in Congress, you just have a lot of faces and you have a different approach. And I hope that we can allow for that. And I think you see that even in the evangelical movement. There's a lot of voices because we can all read articles on the internet and get on Facebook and form groups and realize like, I don't need to wait for the gatekeepers at the very top of an elite media structure to tell me who the leader is and to let me hear that voice that makes me know I'm not alone and that I also have these experiences Like there is more capability, more sort of democratization. There's more available to us to to speed up the process, which is hard because humans don't like quick change. But I do think that there is there is some possibilities there that maybe we don't have to have a war or an FDR or a Churchill or whatever to lead us through really dramatic societal changes and and institutional upgrades in a way we have in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're right that the the new Congress is a good way to think about this because it's not just 
as much as like AOC has taken the lead in, in terms of cel- celebration, there's so many. I'm waiting for that long read, Anne. When are we going to get that long read? I'm waiting for the celebrity studies and the culture writing to intersect at AOC because I'm I'm just I'm being patient, but I'm just telling you right now, I'm waiting for it. But then like, you know, on the cover of the New York Times magazine, they had Deb Holland, who is one of the two first Native American women to serve in Congress. You know, there are just so many different lodestar. Like there's so many different mm-hmm. things to look to um, that it it decenters the the pressure and the the desire to have one person serve all of those functions. Right. So like if the star if anything, like the star of the new political class is just women in Congress, mm-hmm. right? Which that's a different sort of leadership strategy. I mean, I'm okay with just deciding among the three of us that the answer to all our institutional problems is to put women in charge. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm okay with that. Beth and I've had that conversation about evangelicals. Man, when we're looking around, who's having these tough conversations? It's all the women leaders. Right. Well, and I think... It's stereotypical and like slightly reductive, but at the same time, largely true that women are better at compromise. Like we don't see a compromise as a moral loss or victory, right? Like it's not as black and white as that. It's more, well, we got to get stuff done. Like if we don't get stuff done, then the the house is going to fall apart. Like that is our everyday lives is getting stuff done. And so I do think that the leadership style is more effective in that way. I don't know. I don't know if this is accurate with Nancy Pelosi holding the line Braveheart style right now, but. (laughs) Well, she is being forced to rule like a man right now, which is, you know, she, the way that the conversation has shifted around her since she took, retook the leadership position is really, really interesting to me because there has been a lot of the like, up to this point, like she's a crone, like she's a herpy, like all those things that often are affixed to older women. But now she is being, I think, framed as using a lot of the language that is used to describe male leaders and especially stronger than Chuck Schumer. Like she, she is, uh, more resilient at this moment. But yes, I agree. Like <laughs> that isn't necessarily an example of of compromise, but I don't know what the compromise is going to be in this situation. I just I think the TSA has to go on strike if anything is going to change because most people are not personally affected and uh, unfortunately in our country it takes people being personally inconvenienced to force a change in situations like this. I think an important thing to notice about this, though, is that women's leadership, I think when you when you say it like, well, I think we should just put women in charge and it'll fix things. I do think some people react to that with, oh, you just want everybody to be nice and you want everything to be a compromise. And there's something like mushy about it yeah. that people find unappealing. And I don't think that's true at all. I'm not sure that women are inherently better at compromising. I do think we understand inherently because of all the things you mentioned that we have to negotiate in our everyday lives. I do think we're better at understanding that sometimes there is not a compromise available and you just have to give way to the other person. Mm. You have to say, I disagree, but I'm going to go forward with you because our relationship is important to me. And that's what is lacking to me in our government. I give the president some credit. I know it's a low bar, but I give the president some credit for saying, okay, I won't give the State of the Union until the shutdown is over because there's not a compromise in that situation that makes any sense. He just has to give way. And he's not great at that. And so, yay, that we have one example. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that that's such a good point that sometimes it does involve like 
preserving the nation over a compromise, if that makes sense. Well, and I mean, this has just been like a basically a dream come true. It's no big deal. You're my favorite internet writer. I'm so thrilled that you came on here. I'm so thrilled you wrote this article and we got to talk about it and it's getting the attention. I mean, that I personally have felt your writing has deserved for a long time. And I'm just, I hope you come back many, many times over. And this was really, really fabulous. Thank you so much. Awesome. I was, this was so fun. Thank you guys. Yay. Thank you. Like I I said, uh, every choice I made was worth it to get me to this point. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anne. Thanks so much to Anne Helen Peterson for being here. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday. We're going to talk about all of the news, including a catch up on the Mueller investigation and hopefully good news about the government shutdown. I'm just going to be an optimist. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.